Welcome to the vodcast. Throughout 2022, headlines frequently called our attention to the massive shoplifting problem in the United States. On December 23rd, 2022, the Wall Street Journal ran a story highlighting that shoplifting is now a $95 billion annual problem. That's billion with a B. And of course, we've all seen the footage from store cameras in which a crew of thugs entered a store, take anything and everything they want, and leave. They're young, violent, and operate in such numbers that store clerks are powerless to do anything to stop them. All a clerk can do is stand behind the counter and watch. It may seem like a problem without a solution, but it's not. As with so many problems in America, government is a big part of the problem, and its inaction is a green light for criminals to keep doing it. But there is a solution, and we're going to talk about it right now. The Dr. Reality Vodcast with Dave Champion. Let's start with this. Before I went into the military, I caught shoplifters for a living. I started doing it in 1977 when I was 17 years old. I was hired to catch shoplifters at a Sears store in a rough neighborhood of Los Angeles near downtown. 46 years ago, and the world was a very different place when a major retailer like Sears could hire a 17-year-old to catch shoplifters. No one thought twice about it. Back then, catching shoplifters was really a thing. I was already a skilled martial artist by the time I started working for Sears, but the dojo is no substitute for street fighting. I got a good deal of experience fighting with people who did not want to come back inside when I stopped them after they'd left the store without paying. The only person who bested me was a four-foot-ten pregnant woman. And I'll tell you about that in a minute. Shoplifting agents used a variety of means to identify shoplifters. Sometimes we simply walked around pretending to be a shopper. Other times we'd be in hidden locations designed to allow us to see the sales floor without customers being able to see us. Cameras had yet to be installed throughout stores as they are today, so most everything was done through the personal observation of the agent. When we zeroed in on a person we suspected was not going to pay, we'd keep him or her in sight until they left the store with the merchandise. Then we'd follow the person or persons outside and arrest them. Back then, at least in the places I worked, and if I was involved, coming back inside was not discretionary. They could come back in the easy way or the hard way, but they were coming back in the store. Of course, it also wasn't some sort of macho suicide mission either. I remember there was a case of a six foot six biker who concealed a very large stolen kitchen knife in his boot. We quickly staged about eight male employees in the parking lot. They were managers and warehouse guys. Back then, male employees were expected to help out with such things. In total, when I stopped the biker about 20 feet outside the store, he was facing 10 men. He chose to turn over the knife peaceably, and we walked back in the store. But it didn't always play out that way. One time, I went out the door after two black gals who had stolen a bunch of costume jewelry. All the merchandise was in the purse of one of the women. The other had merely shielded the actions of her pal from being observed by nearby employees. When they hit the door, they were moving with a purpose, so I ended up stopping them in the parking lot about 100 feet from the store. It was much further than is preferred. When I caught up with them, I went into the normal routine, telling them, we appear to have a problem, I need you to step back into the store with me. <laughs> it was my way to always keep it casual at first. If they wanted to escalate it, it was up to them. 
In this case, what I didn't know was they had a carload of friends nearby who had spotted me approaching the two women. As I was speaking to the two gals, I felt something wrap around my ankles. I, I, I looked down to see a woman's arms wrapped around my ankles from behind me. A split second later, a pair of arms wrapped around my face. Then the crew of women toppled me over and started kicking the shit out of me. I was on the ground with about five or six women literally kicking me and going after my eyes with their fingernails. So how did I handle that? When I saw the arms around my legs, I knew instantly I was in trouble. So I reached out and I grabbed the wrist of the woman who had the merchandise in her purse. I locked onto her wrist with a desk whip. So when I went down, she went down with me. As the women were kicking me and going after my eyes with their fingernails, I ignored all that, got my cuffs out, and handcuffed the woman's wrist to my own wrist. As I said earlier, going back in the store was not discretionary. Once the pack of women realized they could not rescue their friend, they grabbed the purse, jumped in their car, and tore out of there like a bat out of hell. But here's the thing. As I was fighting with them, I saw several men standing around watching it go down, including a couple of male employees standing on the loading dock of the company I worked at, and a mailman. It seems they were watching the show rather than lending a hand. I didn't really appreciate that. Before I get into the solutions to our current shoplifting epidemic, I'll tell you about the one suspect that bested me, the one that got away. I was watching several people through two-way glass when I saw a four foot ten pregnant Hispanic woman in her early 20s grab a bunch of necklaces from a counter display and drop them in her purse. She immediately headed for the door. I radioed to other agents that I was going out the front door after her and gave them her description. I stopped her about 40 feet from the door, flashed my badge, and explained that we needed to step back into the store for a moment. I ordinarily would have taken a female suspect's purse away from her at that point for my own safety, as well as to secure the evidence. In this instance, I let the fact that she was young, diminutive, and pregnant affect my judgment and did not take her purse away. I gently took her by her left elbow to escort her back to the store. Just about that time, two other shoplifting agents came out the front doors to assist. I was about to wave them off when two things happened simultaneously. The first was that I saw a look of shock on the faces of the agents. The other was I felt something poke me in the gut on my right side. I looked down to see a revolver pressed against my side. I looked into the woman's eyes and they were flat and hard. Zero emotion. I slowly withdrew my hand from her elbow, took a step away and said, Adios, senora. She turned and walked away. Because we were not permitted to carry firearms, there was nothing we could do to stop her. As I mentioned a moment ago, 1977 was a different world from the one in which we live today. The next day, I spoke to a neighbor who sold me a Walther pistol. I purchased a holster and never again worked without being armed. I kept my mouth shut. No one I worked with or for ever knew. For me, it was a simple equation. I was never again going to go up against somebody armed with a firearm with me being unarmed. Since there was no way to know who was armed or when, the only solution was for me to be armed at all times. Despite a company policy that shoplifting agents could not be armed, the CEO of Sears wasn't going to be there to save my life if someone pulled a gun or a knife on me in the future. There was only one person, one person only, responsible for my physical safety. Me. Taking personal responsibility for my own safety has been a constant in my life. Here I am, 46 years after the events I'm sharing with you today, 
And I still carry a firearm every day because I remain the only person responsible for my safety. With all that said, the number of shoplifting incidents has not only exploded in recent years, but it also involves some very different methods, which in some cases push well past any previous understood meaning of the word shoplifting and moves into the realm of what I consider violent acts of theft. Before we jump into how to address the issue, it's important to note that if you buy things in any retail store, which means all of you, of course, then you're paying for this crime wave because every single company passes on the cost to you by raising the price of things you buy. In other words, this isn't just someone else's problem. If you buy anything, you are paying for thieves taking things without paying for them. When I was young, theft was seen as a moral issue, a matter of right and wrong. That's why, as I mentioned earlier, mail store employees were expected to assist security personnel if asked to do so. It was literally seen as the good guys versus the bad guys. If you were a good guy, you chipped in and helped catch the bad guys. That was pretty much a universally held perspective. Today, businesses and their employees no longer see people stealing merchandise as a moral issue, as a matter of right and wrong. Starting about 25 years ago, the perspective started to shift. Businesses began to see theft as purely an economic equation with no moral significance. The thinking became that businesses would rather increase prices and or write off losses, as well as ensure there would be no workers' comp claims by injured employees or lawsuits from those arrested. In short, catching crooks in the act, and in some cases seeing them punished through the courts, ceased to be something in which businesses had any interest. When I first noticed the changing perspective of large retail corporations, I knew we would come to where we have arrived today with theft from retail stores now thoroughly out of control. My first practical run-in with this perspective was at a Home Depot in Santa Clarita, California, in probably about 2000. While I was shopping, I observed a guy stuffing hand tools down his pants. I kept an eye on him, and as he approached the front of the store, I grabbed a manager I knew. I quickly explained what had occurred and told him if he'd task an employee to going out the door with me, because it was Home Depot's property, not mine, I'd make the arrest and testify against the thief in court. Uh, the manager thanked me for bringing it to his attention, but said they'd prefer to let the guy leave with the stolen merchandise. In my opinion, this abdication of the moral component of theft is the exact and specific reason businesses find themselves now drowning in a tsunami of theft. At this point in time, while businesses have realized the problem is reaching epidemic levels, they refuse to connect the dots between their shifting perspective over the last 25 years and the problem having now exploded. As long as consumers see it as acceptable to be charged for what criminals steal, most corporations won't change their stance. The current framework of statutory law, which is way behind the curve in addressing the problem, is one of the reasons corporations prefer paralysis to taking action. And that brings us to what is necessary to reverse the trend. Before I get into the changes needed to the law, let me make the point that once ongoing irresponsibility has allowed a problem to grow to epidemic proportions, the measures needed to correct it may appear pretty harsh to some people. Think of it this way. You can adopt a healthy lifestyle or get heart disease requiring a heart transplant. A heart transplant seems pretty radical in comparison to having been wise enough to make some intelligent changes years ago. The same phenomenon exists in this matter. After decades of abdication of responsibility, the cure is 
like a heart transplant, far more unpleasant than it otherwise would need to be. So, what changes in the law do I suggest? To begin with, retailers have to be freed from the specter of lawsuits with potentially massive judgments being brought by people arrested for committing crimes against the company. Further, company employees must be able to physically arrest a criminal without the company or the employee being sued for ridiculous amounts of money. In order to accomplish this, multiple changes need to be made in the law controlling how courts handle civil actions against retailers by those having committed crimes against the company or on company property. The first change is that company employees cannot be sued personally unless the plaintiff can show an employee's use of force rose to the level of gross negligence. In other words, a claim that the employee's use of force to effect the arrest was excessive would not permit a suit against an employee to proceed. The standard for that needs to be gross negligence. Second, there should be a cap on monetary awards against the company if the company can show a civil jury that the plaintiff did commit a criminal act against the company and the arrest was therefore legally justified. Given the proliferation of video cameras in and around retail establishments, this should be easy to show a jury. The cap should be low enough that even low-rent attorneys won't be tempted to file a trash lawsuit in the hope of getting a few bucks in settlement. The cap would be inapplicable if the jury determines no probable cause existed for the arrest or the level of force used to affect the arrest rose to the level of gross negligence. The next change should be that retail shoplifting agents can carry firearms with a permit in the same manner as do licensed uniformed security guards. I'm no fan of permits to exercise an unalienable right, but insurance companies will decline to cover armed agents working for retailers without there being state-sanctioned training and certification. In cases where a shoplifting agent needed to use a firearm, the aforementioned monetary judgment cap would apply if a civil jury determines the plaintiff had committed a crime and the shoplifting agent attempting to arrest the suspect was reasonably in fear for his or her life or limb at the time the suspect was shot. Use of deadly force when one has a reasonable basis for fear for his or her life or limb is essentially a universal standard. In the framework of law we're discussing here, adhering to that standard would bar outrageous jury awards against retailers. Let's move on to a newer theft phenomenon that will require what is likely a more controversial change in the law. The phenomenon of which I speak is the theft by a large group of perpetrators. You've probably seen examples on the news. The typical MO is a group of thieves swarm into a business at the same time and proceed to ransack the business for whatever merchandise they want to steal. The thieves outnumber the shocked employees, so the employees are left to watch the place get ransacked without being able to do anything to stop it. The gang of thieves is usually in and out within 30 to 60 seconds, and the monetary loss to the business is substantial. This tactic has been employed everywhere, from local convenience stores to high-end stores in Beverly Hills. From the thieves' perspective, the technique has the advantages that no one can stop them because of their numerical superiority, and they are long gone by the time the cops arrive. When I say no one can stop them, that means under existing law. But we can change the law to make this tactic much less appealing to the thugs. The solution is to modify the law so that retail store employees and others may use deadly force to stop an act of theft or other crime committed inside the business when three or more perpetrators are involved. 
As an example, if 10 thugs swarm a business and start ransacking the place, the employees, or anyone witnessing it, are free to gun them down even though the employees' lives are not in immediate peril. The legal logic goes like this. The employees have a duty to safeguard company merchandise from theft, but given the number of criminals involved, any employee who attempts to detain or arrest the perpetrators would likely be taking his life into his own hands. In other words, the threat of violence against anyone who attempts to stop the thieves is implicit in the method they are employing, and therefore no other factor is needed to justify the use of deadly force. Also, because of that, no verbal commands are necessary. As soon as the ransacking begins, anyone witnessing it may gun down the perps. Each of the perps remains a legally viable target until they cross the threshold and are outside the business. Once they're outside the business, the traditional standard for use of deadly force comes back into play. Being permitted to use deadly force when accosted by multiple suspects already exists as a legal principle. It's known as the disparity of force doctrine. If you're walking to your car and four thugs approach you with evil intent, the law does not require you to physically fight all four of them with your bare hands because you've not yet been incapacitated or killed. The law does not require you to wait until a situation gets to the point where you've lost any realistic ability to defend yourself. The law recognizes that their numbers, which produces a potential life-threatening disparity of force, justifies your use of deadly force in self-defense. All we'd be doing in this proposed statutory change is switching the party experiencing potential life-threatening disparity of force from the guy in the parking lot to the store employees who are the flesh-and-blood representatives of the victim company or others present when the crime is being committed. And here's the bottom line. How many thieves are going to blast into a business and start ransacking it if they know that doing so greenlights employees and patrons to gun them down? Having worked in law enforcement for six years, deep in the hood, I can assure you the answer is none. The vast majority of criminals are also cowards. They do their dirt when they believe they have the advantage and steer clear when they think they're going to get shot. Anyone who's spent any time on the street knows thugs act like tough guys when they have the advantage and run like little bitches when a good guy pulls a gun. Leaving aside personal experience on the street, about 20 years ago, researchers asked prison inmates what they feared most when committing crimes. The number one answer, by far, was running into an armed citizen. Yet leftist anti-gunners continue to try to take that fear away from criminals so the criminals can be more comfortable and confident when committing crimes. It's absolutely insane. What about potential bad publicity from a shoplifting agent or other company employee shooting someone? In my opinion, the way to address that is for the retailer to be crystal clear with the public from the moment one of these laws change the company should issue a statement saying the following, quote, Our business exists to sell quality merchandise that will be valued by the communities we serve. To shop for such merchandise is the reason people come to our stores. When people are in our stores, they should adhere to our policies and follow the law. If they do not follow the law and store security personnel informs them they are being arrested, the person should peacefully cooperate. If a person attempts to resist or otherwise becomes violent, the law permits our security personnel to use such force as is reasonably required to overcome the resistance and affect the arrest. If a person causes our security agents to fear for their lives or limbs, 
the law authorizes them to use deadly force to protect themselves. If you have improper motives for coming to our stores, or are the kind of person who will break the law while in our stores, or may become violent, we ask that you not enter our stores. We are confident our customers support our effort to rein in theft because doing so creates the safe and sane shopping environment our customers want for their families while keeping prices as low as possible. Close quote. I believe Americans are ready for this kind of straight talk rather than being fed some sort of woke horseshit. Speaking of straight talk, I want to remind you that the U.S. government has been running a 60-year massive disinformation campaign to convince the American people that they owe income tax. More specifically, that ordinary Americans who earn a living to support themselves or their families owe income tax. I'm here to tell you that is a complete lie. It is government disinformation. I haven't filed an income tax return or paid a penny of income tax since 1993. The only reason you have is you didn't look at the law for yourself, thinking it's too complex, so you have to defer to what experts have told you. What have we learned about the credibility of experts in the last few years? You may not have been aware those who told you the law requires you to pay income tax were lying to you, or in some cases honestly mistaken because they bought the lie when it was told to them. When you read income tax shattering the myths, what will shock you most is the mountains of irrefutable evidence showing Congress has never imposed the income tax on the ordinary working American and the lack of even a single shred of evidence indicating they did. That's why the government is engaged in a 60-year disinformation campaign that never gets into what the law really says. You've been the victim of government smoke and mirrors your whole life. Isn't it time to change that or at least find out about it? The good news is it's incredibly easy to do. It literally requires reading just one book. Imagine reading one book and being able to show anyone and everyone that the government has been lying all along. Now, stop imagining that and do it. Go to drreality.news, drreality.news, and order your copy of Income Tax Shattering the Mist right now. While you're there, perhaps also grab a copy of Body Science. Have you ever wondered why, despite America's wealth, scientific prowess, and a gargantuan-sized medical industry, America is the most ill society in all of human history and getting more sick every day? Just like the income tax, the American people have been lied to for decades about how human nutritional physiology works. The establishment convinced the American people things that were incredibly healthy caused disease, and things that caused disease are healthy. If you'd like to get the truth about health, disease, and physiology, body science reveals the lies the establishment has told the American people for decades in order to direct trillions of dollars into various industries, and then compares that to what true science tells us. And what true science tells us has been hidden from you for decades. So go to drreality.news and pick up a copy of Income Tax Shattering the Mist and or Body Science. You have my word. They will be two of the most fascinating books you will ever read. Also, by purchasing Income Tax Shattering the Mist and or Body Science, you help me to continue to be here with these thought-provoking presentations. Thank you for being here. Take care.